I had a simple idea and Reza takes simple ideas and he makes them incredibly impactful and powerful things. So I came to him with like, hey, Reza, I have these schemas. What can I do with them? And that conversation was the origin conversation of CP Solvers. There'll be times when I look at a figure he's created and it's like a, a concept I've seen so many times, like hyponatremia. But the way that he showcases that knowledge, it's just so powerful and impactful. So like, yeah, I've, I've messaged him all. Like I would, I'll be looking at one of his figures and I'll be like, man, this is better than poetry. Like the way he's like outlined the approach to this. And I hope the future of medicine becomes that. Before we jump into today's episode, we at Review of Systems want to thank the Society of General Internal Medicine for giving us the opportunity to attend their national meeting in Aurora, Colorado this summer. The Clinical Problem Solvers, aka Reza and Robbie, were among the invited speakers at that meeting. The next national SGI meeting will be in Boston May 15th through 18th in 2024. Be sure to check it out. Workshop submissions open August 28th. Visit connect.sgim.org for more information and keep a lookout for a full recap of our trip to last year's SGIM meeting. Welcome to our show. Welcome. My name is Julia. Julia Bast. You have to say your name. My name is Lizzie Esselman. Today, we are going to talk to the founders of the Clinical Problem Solvers, and we wanted to have them on here because they are like very cool and smart and do wonderful things in medical education. And we just wanted to like get to know them a little bit more, hear about some of their philosophies around med ed, and just hear a little bit about their story and their journey to creating the awesomeness that is the current clinical problem solvers universe there's lots worldwide there's lots of different pieces it's no longer just a podcast i mean it is more than a podcast unlike us we're just a podcast (laughs) (laughs) on that note um here's our guests take it away Reza Manesh is a hospitalist at the Greater Los Angeles Veteran Affairs Medical Center and Associate Professor of Medicine at the UCLA School of Medicine. He is a co-founder of the Clinical Problem Solvers. He graduated from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and completed internal medicine residency training at the University of California, San Francisco. His first faculty position was at John Hopkins University, where he was awarded the Osler House Staff Faculty Teaching Award. Robbie Geha, an assistant professor of medicine at UCSF. He's based at the San Francisco VA Medical Center and is the director of education for the ED, overseeing the education of psychiatry, emergency medicine, and internal medicine residents. Clinically, he splits his time between the emergency room and the inpatient teaching wards. Robbie also is the co-founder of the Clinical Problem Solvers, a multimodal medical education venture run by a global and incredibly diverse team that hosts a weekly podcast. On the podcast, they focus on diagnostic reasoning, anti-racism, women in medicine, and queer rounds. Also through CP Solvers, they do live virtual morning report and other medical education content. Guys, hear me okay then? Yes, we can. Yeah. No more pausing. We're good. Yeah. (laughs) 
my wife and I went to this incredible fish place and I had the make made the mistake of having fries and fish tartar sauce. And I was literally when I got Reza's text was passed out on the couch, like completely. <laughs> so I, I and I don't sleep in the afternoon. So I just doused myself <laughs> with water and uh, yeah, sorry again for being late. And thanks to Prof Rez for the reminder. <laughs> were, there, were there any bones in the fish or just boneless? No, fish burger. Like it was just oh, like, it, had, it was just so, so rich. So I came back and I was just like a little bloated. And this was, <laughs> this was after a six mile run. And so I just went out. Um, so yeah, I'm slowly waking up before your eyes now and excited to, I'll be like so disinhibited. So ask away. <laughs> nice. <laughs> feel you when julia came over to my house for us to get ready for this i had we like ordered brunch and then i ordered a side pancake because i wanted to like have something sweet and it's like a cinnamon roll pancake and i had like half of it and then i fell asleep on the couch so (laughs) i'm in the same boat (laughs) sorry to ruin everyone's naps today no No better way than to hang out with lovely people thank you for having us well, thanks for being here. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Um, we introduced ourselves earlier to Reza, but I'm Julia. Julia's an intern. Oh, yeah. She's about to be a second year. Amazing. Going into Hemonk, probably. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and I'm Lizzie. I'm a second year, almost third year, going into hospital medicine. Yeah. Terrific. It's nice to meet you both. My name is Reza. Um <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I think the blood. I think the blood is still flowing to your intestines, my friend. <laughs> I'm still talking my dreams out loud. That's all. <laughs> oh, this is going to be our best episode by far, I think. <laughs> uh, well, usually we do kind of like more of a fun question to start with, and we were trying to think of our question before this, and we, you know, I just woke up from a nap. Julia came over. We're a little tired because we're residents. And so we had to put on a pump up song to get ourselves like awake. <laughs> and I don't know if this is our favorite pump up song, but this is the one that we chose in the moment was Yeah by Usher. <laughs> and we were curious if you guys had a pump up song that you like to play. Pump up song. Okay. So it it varies from time to time. But um, right now... I would say the song that gets me most. So I was just in the gym, and when this song came on, I started mouthing the lyrics to the song, and it's not the original version; it's the the remix. It's a Jay Z song, and um, it has the the remix is. Right, I never felt like we were gonna butcher the first question. It's not even like a clinical <laughs> problem. You know, listen, listen. <laughs> Oh, We're well, just gonna get better and better and better. I promise you. <laughs> it, it has to do with um, it's New York City, but it's a remix, which is the Paris. One second, I'm gonna. Get is it this. like Empire State of Mind or something like that? No, no. Okay, here it is. It's um, <clears throat> New York City. It's Concept de Paris, aka Concept de Paris, Ooh. and it's it's so good. It's like I feel like it's better than the original song of Jay Z, okay. but it's been coming on my Pandora station. So New York City, con- Concept de Paris, you're welcome, audience. <laughs> nice. Okay. Next podcast pre-recording, we're going to listen to that one. <laughs> It'll become our pump-up song, too. <laughs> okay. 
I love the I love the little French accent there, Prof. Rez. That was so good. Yeah, that was fancy. That was so good. Y'all, um, I will tell you so I will I I I feel like I supplement Prof. Rez. I can't quite be Prof. Rez. That's that's why my dreams are all about being Reza. Um, <laughs> I will tell you that I think equally important in life is the ability to pump down. Mm-hmm. Like you're moving really, really, really fast and you need something to kind of slow you down, center you, and um kind of like chill. So I love this. This is you can't probably can't see it. I'll just read it out to you. I can't see it. Yeah, um, the the light isn't very favorable. Um, it's the Dalai Lama songs called "The Inner World," and it is like very meditative music, full of wisdom. And then it just like it's impossible not to listen to it and just have temporary peace. So after you start with concept of Pari, you do your workout. You're like crushing it. You're like, all right. All right, can't get carried away. You got to come back down to earth. You mix it up with some dialama, and there's a beautiful couple of hours for you for free. <laughs> I love, I love this. Yeah, <laughs> two songs I have never heard of. So this is great. Perfect. Thank you for the Rex. <laughs> and thank you for being here. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll kind of dive into the first quest- question. So, Robbie and Reza, you're famous for creating the clinical problem solvers. Um, for those that might not know what that is, could you explain to us what the clinical problem solvers are? I mean, no. I expect everyone no. to know what that is. But. <laughs> no, if you don't know what it is, I'm not explaining it. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> of course. We were just short. We have we have an ounce of humility left. Uh, but Prof Reza pointed at me, so I'll take a stab at it. Yes. Yeah, so the clinical problem solvers is, a, uh, is really much more than when it began. It started off as a podcast series to, to uh, focus on educating and teaching folks uh, fundamental tenets of diagnosis, but involved to uh, being so much more than that, teaching both clinical reasoning now, but many other important topics like anti-racism in medicine, um, what it means to be a woman in the space of medicine, uh, what it means to be a trainee, learning the art of clinical reasoning and practicing that. And so both what has been taught has changed and how it has been taught has evolved significantly, um, including sort of becoming more um, community-based as opposed to talking at people with morning report series. And then I think ultimately um, has gone back to its original roots um, from the beginning with the creation of RLR CP solvers, where Reza and I get to um, recreate the first few episodes that we have where we present cases to each other. So it's diagnosis. It's really, really important stuff in medicine and it's community. But I think the core of it has always been and will always be clinical problem solving Um and the core of it was Reza and I, and a large part of that continues to be in in a sort of separate space, rlrcpsolvers.com. And the CP Solvers is a space where other people can also express their talent. Perfect. Crushed it. <laughs> and along those lines, how did you both get involved in this? Like, what is your CP Solvers origin story? Oh, okay. So my CP Solvers origin story, Robbie has a different one. But mine was my fourth year of medical school when I was interviewing for residency programs. I went to UCSF and there I witnessed something I had never seen before. And that was a case being presented to a physician who was tackling the case in real time. Now, this discussant was unaware of any aspects of the case beforehand. And also the audience was blinded to the case. Only the presenter knew the case. And it just really gave me goosebumps watching this individual, Gapreet Dhaliwal, discuss each aliquot of information. Um, and I knew something magical was happening, uh, but I, I 
couldn't appreciate how magical it was until I ended up at UCSF. And then I got to witness that regularly at Morning Report with Gapreet Dhaliwal, Lawrence Tierney, Harry Hollander, our previous program director. So that was the origin story of my interest in clinical reasoning. Yeah. And, you know, mine was a, a pathway that involved um, many wonderful things in people and then culminated in meeting Prof. Rez as a resident at UCSF and um, developing what would become not during residency, but actually ironically after residency uh, relationship that is um, really the bedrock of many things I do in my life. And um, that our passion for clinical reasoning translated into the clinical problem solvers because of um, really, I, I'll just like, I think this is, this will become clear to all of you. I had a simple idea and Reza takes simple ideas and he makes them incredibly impactful and powerful things. So I came to him with like, Hey, Reza, I have these schemas. What can I do for, with them? And that conversation is in a zip car going from a parking lot to my, uh, to work. It was the origin conversation of CP solvers. I love that. Nice. And if I, I can, can add, picture it. If I can add two things. One is when he says I had a bunch of schemas or a few schemas I want to put on a website, he had 1,500 figures. So <laughs> I just, I, I want to make, I want to embarrass him a little bit. So he, he had a repository of figures that were um, really crafted during his residency. And then I'll never forget this. When Robbie emailed me the first time we met up, it was at a coffee shop on 9th and Irving in San Francisco. And we went there and um, we both got salads with dressing. And I remember as we were talking with each other, the feta cheese was like on his mouth <laughs> and he was like chewing, but he was like so shy. He's like, how can I meet Gapreet Dhaliwal or how can I follow the path that you follow to create these relationships? <laughs> I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but I'll never forget <laughs> that moment where like the feta cheese was just dripping down his mouth. I'm so glad that my wife isn't isn't in this room right now. <laughs> she would die laughing. Is she like oh by the way, if you could imagine, I just told you what meal I had. I had the delicious, like juicy burger. If a little bit of feta cheese got into my mouth, you can imagine how utterly disgusting I was having that burger. So yes, it's now public information. <laughs> <laughs> Really getting called out the origin of this masterful thing, but don't forget the feta cheese. Yes, it all started <laughs> at the feta cheese. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that, like, how did you first, I kind of heard what you said, Reza, about like how you first got interested in clinical reasoning, like this one case, but do you think it was just like a switch went off and you're like, okay, like I am, I love clinical reasoning. Like, did you take a while to get good at it? And kind of like, what is, why like clinical reasoning? Why was that something that you were super passionate about? Yeah, I know Robbie's story is going to be um, much deeper than mine. And when you ask the question, uh, was I immediately good at it? I still feel like I'm not good at it. So I'm still, <laughs> I, I, and I say that with, with humility. It's, it's something that you can never master. And so I'm much better than I was when I started but I'm nowhere near where I want to be, where I know I can be. Um, but when I watched Gapreet discuss that case, like imagine this, so many times we're on service as medical students, trainees, and there's like that senior, that expert clinician who arrives at a diagnosis, but doesn't clearly delineate the steps it took to get to that diagnosis. So when I saw the invisible become visible, I knew immediately, like, 
regardless of what I ended up pursuing in general internal medicine, I wanted to have that clarity of thinking and that clarity of speaking. And so that light bulb did immediately go off. And then um, I love teaching. Like if I actually consider myself a teacher first and then a doctor, but being a doctor requires a lot of teaching to patients, to learners and um, clinical reasoning and general internal medicine gives you the opportunity to be exposed to so many learners. So it just made a lot of sense. And I am, like I said, I think with deliberate practice reflection and really surrounding yourself with people like Robbie and colleagues that push you, um, growth will happen. Like when Robbie and I work on the rlrcpsolvers.com, every week we spend maybe four to five hours reflecting on the case. And so you just slowly get better and better. But Robbie, um, I wonder, I'm curious to your, I know your story, but I'm sure the audience is curious to your story. Yeah. You know, I think, um, yeah, I think uh, my story is one in which like my entry point into the world of clinical reasoning was largely because of, um, of a family member who suffered tremendously uh, from the lack of it. And I think, um, and yeah, my father got uh, ultimately diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, but um, the, it sounds so silly to say that now. And I, you know, I feel like I actually used to say this, used to um, refrain from sharing the story and then spent quite a bit of time reflecting on it and now share it more frequently. And and the more I talk about it, the more ridiculous it sounds that like there was such a multi-year struggle to get an answer for such a common diagnosis. But mm-hmm. it really was very tough and very enlightening as somebody who wasn't going to be a doctor to see that happen. And it really gave me the fuel to to uh, continue to, to do what we're doing today. And so that was the impetus of it. Um, and I think, you know, the, the notion that Reza just shared about growth and clinical reasoning is something I resonate with so deeply because I still remember being an intern talking to him and sitting across the room from him and having so much respect and admiration for him, but also unfortunately a negative emotion, which is intimidation, intimidation by from even him, you know, like he was being so nice and meeting me at a coffee shop and staring at my lips with the feta cheese on them. <laughs> yet, and yet I was intimidated, you know, and I was intimidated by Gurpreet so much so that I didn't even want to, like, I felt like I, if it weren't for Reza, I don't think I would have been boosted into the space initially and then subsequently. And so um, the good news, though, I think is I just, for me, my growth like my view about clinical reasoning is no longer honestly good or bad. It's realizing that you're on a ladder to infinity. And at some point at the beginning of that journey, you're looking up and you're like, holy smokes, like this is crazy. I'm just going to keep going and going and going and going. You keep looking up, keep looking up and you can be like, I'm just not good enough. I'm just never going to make it. And, but at some point you might accidentally look down. And when you accidentally look down, you're like, holy smokes, look how far I've come, you know, like this is crazy. And that's true for anybody. Um, when, if you're an intern and you look down and you're working with the MS3 that you once were, you'll be like, holy smokes, you know, like I'm so different now. And if you're that MS3 who looks down and sees the MS1 version of you that came and spent one day with the clinical team and you didn't know anything that they were talking about. Mm -hmm. So I think I've looked down so many times now that I realized that this ladder is just pointless. Like you're literally just like, there is no good, bad. It's just all, all artificial constructs that we have. What really is happening is just your sense of self and your idea of confidence, which is a pervasive life concept, seeps into this space. Because I have, I feel like I'm good at bad at many things, and sometimes that 
that slips into clinical reasoning, but I, we're lucky that we do it so often. RLR that we're like, ah, you know what? I'm just, I am who I am and I know I'm going to be better tomorrow than I am today. And we'll, we'll keep going. I think that, but I mean, that's a very lovely story. Thank you for sharing with us. And I think something really important that sometimes we don't think about is all of the stuff that we're learning to be better at diagnosing things faster at thinking things through, like really does have a big effect on our patients' lives, like thinking about it on the other end. And I think the other piece that I heard both of you discuss is kind of these ideas around just like imposter syndrome in medicine and this idea of like the hierarchy and feeling intimidated by people above you, which is like definitely something that I've felt through training and will continue to feel, I'm sure. But are there ways that you have tried to work with your learners to combat that or to make them feel more on your level or just to like work through that on your own that have been helpful? There is so much data out there and there's so much conversation out, out there about what imposter syndrome means. And I think the problem about generalizing this conversation is it means it's such a personal experience, what one feels when they feel like they're not enough. And I think I have a hard time generalizing this. So I think the way that um, Rez and I address this is very, very, um, I think it's very, very intimate and personal. Like Reza will tell you many, many stories of that often begin with him just like meeting people where they're at and listening. And so I think imposter syndrome is no different than uh, than iron deficiency. It's really just an initial thought. Like you really have to come up with a destination diagnosis and something more concrete. And so for me, I'll share where I'm at with this notion. I think um, the only solution that I'm able to carry out in my life with the people that I'm around who experience some things is to be able to sit with them, create space and listen. And, but at the same time, and listen, process, and come up with some action steps that are doable. But at the same time, I actually become increasingly wary of the following question. Is some form of struggle and feeling inadequate a necessary part of discovering yourself and discovering your clinical identity? Am I? Um, what are realistic expectations of the journey of climbing the Mount Everest of medicine and can how can you not look up at some point and be like, holy smokes, like this is there's something really, really tough and I don't think I'm cut out for this. And I don't think anybody who's climbed Mount Everest for the first time has ever been like, oh, I got this from the get-go. No one. I mean, it takes maybe like the 10th time to be like, oh, you know what? Maybe this expedition is going to be less hard. So for me, I think it's personal. It's often very unique to the individual and the notion that it can be eliminated and does not have to be there is also something that I'm not sure is true. So uh, I don't think there's something generalizable. I think it's personal and probably personal pervasive and probably ever present. And so living with that and recognizing that I think is important. Yeah. I think that that is a really interesting insight and kind of the big piece of it is figuring out how, within that personal area of it, the outlets that we use to deal with those feelings and move forward, it seems like could be kind of the bigger piece there. And then again, having it be personal to everyone mm-hmm. and remembering that for ourselves and our trainees. I was going to kind of switch gears a little yeah. bit still on the trainee path, but about like the clinical reasoning. Um, so earlier we were talking about how you guys are teachers first, and I was kind of wondering 
how do you promote development of diagnostic <clears throat> like reasoning within your trainees when you're working with them? Yeah, th that's a great question. I, I think there's a number of settings where you can work on diagnosis for trainees. One of them is morning report, where as a faculty member, you have access to a increasing number of trainees at a specific time point. But in order for it to be effective, you have to sort of change how morning report is actually facilitated. And I'll make a plug for Dr. Juan Lessing's paper on uh, scripted versus unscripted case for morning report. And maybe you guys can include a link of that in the show notes. Definitely. But I think it, re it really highlights like how you can create an environment, foster an environment where it's not so much what you know, but really how do you actually take information, synthesize it, and think about the information that's being presented. On words, when I'm with my learners, I ask them the whys, like always asking them why, why, why. And to give you like um, a way that I do this is on rounds with me, if you're an intern and it's been two months inter intern year or your second year or third year, you actually start with the assessment and plan. I, I don't want to hear any other aspects of the of the story because I assume you've learned how to actually report the data. What I'm most interested in is how do you analyze the data? So I tell them to incorporate the relevant lab findings or subjective data or exam data into their problem-based presentation. And so I put a lot of emphasis on that one-liner. And if someone gives a one-liner that is way too long or doesn't concisely summarize the case or has a lot of distractors, because sometimes what's important about that problem is what you don't include, because you don't want your mind to be distracted by you know unnecessary information. I pause, and then I always go up the ladder in terms of asking questions, because I don't want to start at the top and then go down, because then the person at the top will have that imposter syndrome. You know, I, I work my way up, but I focus on stuff like the problem representation. I focus on how do you order the problem list? Like if someone all of a sudden becomes altered overnight and you're still putting the pneumonia, which we diagnosed three days ago as number one, then that's an area that we can work on like identifying which problems matter most. And I see this far too often. I think when you're writing notes, it's an opportunity to actually think. But a lot of times people don't think. They're just like shortness of breath, pneumonia, ceftriaxone, azithro. Um, but anyways, that those are some ways. And, and then one other thing I'll mention is I love it when I make a, a mistake because one, I get to show everyone that mistakes are going to happen to all levels of learners, including the attending physician. But then I get to do a cognitive autopsy and show how I learned from my mistakes to get better. So if I were to summarize all that, I think if you have a great morning report and it follows a few tenets outlined by, by Dr. Lessing, that, that's a good opportunity for clinical reasoning. Focusing on the assessment and plan when you get beyond your medical school years. And then um, really that problem representation and then encouraging people to actually write out their thoughts or at least share their thoughts as to why they're thinking what they're thinking. I think those are all really great tips. And I think 
pretty pro- like easy to implement into your daily practice for people listening. Um, one of the things that you said really stuck in my mind with the like emphasis on the one-liner because I'm on service right now and I'm on a hepatology team. And t- for rounds today, it's our seventh day with the same attending. It's the same team. We all know the patients, right? So the fellow today was like, all right, all presentations will be one sentence and one sentence only. <laughs> give us everything we need. And so there was like, it was kind of a struggle to fit everything I wanted into one sentence, but it was a good, it was a good, um, mental exercise, mental exercise, I guess. Yeah. Do you find that sometimes learners have a hard time going outside of that? Like if they're working with other attendings that want the whole presentation. And I know that I've been there before where you're on with someone and they're like, I want things to be different or do it like this. And just kind of those gymnastics of changing, And is that something that you also work on during that week that you think you see them kind of change how they're thinking as well? Yeah, that's such a great question because despite me encouraging the learners to do the assessment plan, I'll say probably like 50% of them continue with the usual presentation. (laughs) And then I'm like, should I correct them? I'm like, if I do credit, it's just going to add time. So I just let them do what they want. Yeah. Uh, But I think this is the most important thing. When you do something that's unconventional, you can't judge or belittle that learner. Like when I was at Hopkins, we did bedside rounds. And by bedside, meaning not outside in the hall room, like literally in the patient's room, I was on the computer writing my note. The intern was presenting to the resident. And I promised them a couple of days. I said, we're going to still finish by 11 o'clock, give you an hour before noon conference to do all your work. None of you will ever be belittled or judged in the patient's room or even outside the patient's room. And it's all about learning. So the point I'm trying to make here is creating an environment where everyone feels comfortable, you know, making mistakes, trying something new and being honest and sort of congratulating and applauding people. But um, if you do that, then when it's time to correct them, they're very open to that correction. So to answer your question, I don't think they're intimidated because like, I just, I'm not judging them. Like really I'm not, not for that. Uh, But if they do a good job with like the assessment and plan, then I'm like applauding them and congratulating them and investing in their emotional bank account. So then I can tear them down. Then you can can tell them a few years later that they had cheese on their face. Yeah. (laughs) During an important conversation. I do. I just want to mention and say that I really resonate with the part where you're saying creating the environment, because I think all my best times on service or off service, like any rotations is honestly been all about the environment that the attending or my seniors create. It's not, oh, I did a really good job that one day. Like, I don't remember that I did a killer assessment and plan, but I do remember like how people made me feel. So um, I think that resonates a lot with me. Lizzie makes me feel good on rounds. So, well, well, Julia, you know what that comes down to? It comes down to um, a quote attributed to Theodore Roosevelt, which is, "No one cares how much you know until they know, Robbie, how much you care." Aw, I love it. <laughs> yeah, you know what's funny? Uh, Richard Feynman. On I don't know if you guys follow Richard Feynman. He's a famous physical. Uh, 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 a theoretical physicist. And I think Reza retweeted this and that's how I saw it. He said, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Reza, something like um, uh, you're in the, the best, the students don't need teachers that are brilliant or smart. They need teachers who are enthusiastic and who are kind. 
And I think it really like in it's such a short way of saying like if you show up and you're happy and you're supportive and you're you have like, literally if you just try this, you just show up to rounds and no matter what, unless it is socially inappropriate, like there's a bad outcome for a patient or whatnot, you're just like smiling. Like that's all you do. That's your intervention. I think that um that do does something as small as, as that can do wonders for the clinical environment. With my mask on, no one will be able to see it. Yeah. <laughs> they can see your eyes. I don't know. <laughs> I think I think I think people will be able to spot spot the smile even with the mask. The lie, it's <laughs> they definitely, can tell. Yeah, definitely a barrier. I mean, I think that's something that we've been thinking about when we were preparing for this is just how much in medical education has changed and how I mean, when we were in med school, we had some of these resources, but even just like a few years before that there weren't all of these online resources and you both have created this amazing website that like trainees use all the time, which is awesome. And there's all sorts of other resources out there. And what do you think that this is like doing to medical education? I mean, I think that ultimately like having access to knowledge is a good thing. Um, but have you seen ways that your website has affected other people or heard stories or just kind of your thoughts on this, like technology incorporated in our learning in general? Yeah, you know, I think it's an interesting question, not not something that I reflexively know the answer to, but I think it reflects the idea of access, because I think historically, if you go back even to the sort of tail end of my medical school experience, where in order to acquire knowledge, you had to pay hundreds of dollars for textbooks. And yes. um, now that, that not, not to say that things online are always for free, but I think when you have the ability to learn from a variety of resources um whose inherent interest isn't purely i want to teach you but i also um i need to run a business i think that um levels the playing field a little bit i think what is also happening is that learning is happening um on people's own time and through people's own um sort of like personalized ways to learn and i think what is happening ultimately is sort of like the, the equivalent of the free market of learning where we apply the principles of free market to economics to to um, push for innovation and to push for um, creativity. And I think you're seeing that happen in the world of medical education, where all these people's talents are unlocked, not just in ways of engaging people, but ways of teaching, ways of retaining people. And I mean, if you just look at the CP solvers, we're constantly being pushed by the notion that we can do better to um they really meet the learner where they're at and continue to try to innovate at that. Whereas historically your only outlet was a printed textbook. And so it's exciting to see what the options are. I think one very obvious downside is the paralysis of choice. You know, you often are left wondering, I have so many things to choose from. Am I missing out on something that could be better than this? And that's a very real phenomenon that I experience in the grocery store all the freaking time, <laughs> um, you know? So yeah, that's my take though. I don't know if I have expertise or I've really um, thought about this, but that's my reflex uh, response to it. And I think it's so cool that there's so many more accessible and like free resources to just like even the playing field in medicine because it's so skewed already. And like, you know, still is in a lot of ways towards a certain group of people that have access to this education. Um, so I think that that's a very cool part about your podcast that I've really enjoyed is just it's there for everyone. It's just kind of a question that popped into my head kind of along these same lines, but I feel like currently, like previously, 
medical education, med school, two years of didactics, then you go to the wards and then so on and so forth. And like Lizzie alluded to, when we were in training, it was very much still like the one or two years in the classroom with lectures, but we use these aids like online supplements, like the CP solvers. Um, Do you think there'd ever be a time where with this in the age of widely disseminated resources at all of our hands, do you think there'd ever be a time where we would kind of replace some of our traditional lectures with these resources? Or do you think that would never work and be a terrible idea? Julia, I I think it's a beautiful idea. And I'll tell you why. I think those first two years of medical school are pointless (laughs) and need to be completely restructured. I can't tell you how many people almost quit medicine that are very impactful and um, have had successful careers after the first year of medical school. Here you are sitting in a classroom. There's no context for why you're learning what you're learning. The emphasis is just to learn and forget because as quick as you learn something, it's as quick as you'll forget it. But if you take a long time to learn something, it's going to be imprinted in in the neural networks. So I think we're doing it all wrong in medical school. I think the tuition is outrageous. I I don't know why anyone should be paying $40,000 a year. Um, So to answer your question, I think medical school could be two years. I I think Europe is doing it better, is doing it much better. Um, Right from the beginning, I think you should start seeing patients and you should learn in the context of cases only. And so... These diagrams, these approaches, these schemas, illness scripts, it's putting the patient first. You have to be like innovative and creative, but I I really do think it has to change completely. I think tuition has to go down. I think it has to be case-based, patient-based. All the other stuff is nonsense. Like I think you got to teach people how to think, but they have to learn the knowledge, but in the context of why they're learning the knowledge. Yes, I think everyone has that experience where you learn all this stuff and you immediately forget it. But then as soon as you relearn it with a patient in front of you with their story, then you're like, okay, now I remember how to work up like pancytopenia. Finally, I can remember that. And also that's like why we're here. And I could see that, you know, energizing people through their education instead of learning like the Krebs cycle. I was just joking with someone the other day. We were like, we don't remember any of that. I don't know. That comes up all the time in my <laughs> clinical practice. <laughs> uh, the, really the world of medicine incentivizes and promotes a tremendous amount of discipline. You know, I think you were like, you were supposed to like wake up early and you're supposed to like just work really, really hard. And I think in a field that has been dominated by discipline since its inception, Unfortunately, discipline is a great and wonderful thing, but it restricts creativity because you're supposed to be doing things a certain way forever and ever and ever. And I think what's happening in medicine is something really, really cool where people are um, being very, very creative. And the older generation is accusing this generation of not being disciplined um, simply because they're so unbelievably creative. And like I saw a resident use like in, in the uh, dot, dot phrases and like dictation and whatnot. And people are like, wait, that's not how it was. And oh, that's so bad, but it's so much more efficient and so much more, um, it works so much better. So yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, we're eroding at that like rigorous way of viewing and doing things. And I completely agree with Prof Rez. I think um, 
you have to go on day one. Your first thing should, first experience on day one of medical school should be like, honestly, if I were designing a curriculum, like utterly like failing and taking care of a patient. And then all of a sudden you're failing just enough that you're not like really disappointed in yourself, but like, oh, wow, I have a lot to learn. I'm excited. Let's go. You know, like that, like controlled failure, that would be my dream day one for somebody I were guiding through medical school. Dude, it's crazy, Robbie, you say that because like, I, and I've told Robbie this before, there'll be times when I look at a figure he's created and it's like a, a concept I've seen so many times, like hyponatremia, but the way that he showcases that knowledge, it's just so powerful and impactful. So I, I agree that it's not so many so much the hours you put in, but how you utilize those hours and what do you get for the return of investment? Like, yeah, I've, I've messaged him all that. Like I would, I'll be looking at one of his figures and I'll be like, man, this is better than poetry. Like the way he's like outlined the approach to this. And I hope the future of medicine becomes that. But like everything, change is always difficult because there's a lot of stakeholders and there's a lot of financial, you know, incentives. And so, but over time, change does happen. Well, I'm ready for CP Solvers Med School to come out because it sounds like you guys already had a great curriculum. So can I re-enroll in med school when you guys create that? Just kidding. I would never do that. (laughs) (laughs) And also just imagining how that first day failure would be. I'm just thinking of like those like weird code sims that we would do in medical school with the mannequin being like, no, <laughs> like the tears. I'm sure it would be constructed better than that, but I have a funny image in my mind. <laughs> um, another thing kind of along these lines is medical school education from school to school, I feel like is so different. Like it's always going to be a little different. You're going to see different patients, things like that work in different healthcare systems. But even within the didactics portion, I feel like it's very different based on like regionally and all of that. Do you ever think a universal like didactic portion of medical school would ever work? And then like everyone does their clinical stuff elsewhere? Or do you think it's better to kind of keep it, have variety amongst different schools and regions? I was just going to say, I think everybody should go to clinicalproblemsolvers.com or slash rlrcpsolvers.com, but maybe a proper answer is a better answer. That would be my advice to sterilize the teaching and the curriculum. <laughs> I love that. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a better answer. I echo that answer. And I will I will say that I, I don't know why we even need didactics. Why can't everything just be, if, if we're training, if our goal is to train clinicians, there is a need for scientists. And I love scientists. Without them, we can't advance the field. In fact, at the University of Colorado, we discussed the case, which we won't mention the diagnosis, but it only came to exist because there's a scientist, like someone with a PhD background. So the question becomes, what is your goal? Is it to train clinicians? or And I wouldn't even say that didactics is training scientists, not at all. It's just giving you a lot of random information. <laughs> so Julia, to answer your question, I think I don't think you need didactics. If you did, it makes sense to have a universal curriculum for everyone to access because nowadays medical students aren't even going to class. They're going online, they're paying for sketchy and all these different uh, platforms to learn medicine. But I think you just change the structure completely, start case-based, teach them how to think, teach them approaches and train actual clinicians and don't charge them as much. 
Rob, you're gonna have to start calling me Dean Reza soon. <laughs> you know, uh, I won't tell you the I won't I won't belabor you the context of the conversation, but I called him Chairman Reza yesterday. So, so he's, 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 just working your way up here. Yeah, yeah. he's a dean in one day. <laughs> I do love that the like sketchy culture and all these things have been incorporated into our training because I remember there was one day when I was on the wards that we had a patient with like a nasty sinus infection with like diabetes, and we were like trying to think of what was going on and our attendings like what's that sketchy video with the green car hanging and i was like mucor yes. sketchy yes <laughs> again all of us like related to what that was and it wasn't like oh we remember this from a lecture it was we remember a green car in a mechanic shop from a sketchy image yes mm-hmm. and i think that really speaks to what you both have been talking about too is just allowing space for clinicians to have more creativity which as a resident right now, I'm like, oh, that sounds great. But like, I, we like barely have time to be doing this. I'm proud of us that we have time to do this. But you know, it's hard to, if you are doing something creative outside of like the basic clinical duties or research duties that you have, then that comes out of your personal time usually. And have you, either of you had mentors that have like helped you work through that? Or do you have a lot of time now to work on those creative pieces? And If so, I think that would be like so important for people to think about more in the future when making jobs for doctors. I know that's like probably like a dream wish in the future, but, you know, kind of in a similar way that in tech, they allow for creative space and thinking. I think that could be really important for us as well. You know, I think to be honest with you, Lizzie, this is why it's so important that when you graduate and you want to be a hospitalist, Like not all hospitalist gigs are the same across the country. They all have the title hospitalist. Robbie knows this really well because he's the first person I go to to talk about this stuff. But I've been at three different academic centers as a hospitalist. All three have been extremely different in terms of night shifts. The actual shift, how many patients am I caring for? How many am I admitting? How many hours am I working a week? How many weeks am I working a year? All that varies. And I'll give you uh, one quick example. My director at Hopkins, Dan Brotman, he has kept a very sustainable hospitalist job. One in which you never feel burnout and you feel that you can provide your best possible care to the patients. And if you don't feel burnout and you're providing your best possible care, all of a sudden you are going to have extra hours to think about your ambitions and your desire. But let's say, Lizzie, you get into a job where you work the week 80 hours and it's like being an intern because you're a hospitalist. You're responding to all the pages and you're probably going to be at an academic center where it's going to be very complex. You're going to have five consultants on board and probably in your day, you'll be thinking about medicine 20% of the time. 80% will just be managing people. By the end of this week, Lizzie, you're going to be so tired that you're going to spend the next week recovering. You're not going to be pursuing anything. If you're lucky, you'll exercise. You'll do some stuff with the family, with loved ones. And then Monday rolls around and now it's Sunday and you're just dreading Monday because the week is going to start again. So how can you actually be creative in such a, a job? So my advice is finding a job and it's different that allows you that space to be creative. I know hospital medicine extremely well. So when that time comes for you, you can 
talk with me and I can navigate you as I've done for a lot of my um, trainees. But yeah, I, I would say the job you have, I like Robbie's so happy and he's been creative his this whole time. He's at a VA and at the VA, I'm at a VA now, you have a lot of space for creativity. You have a lot of space for providing your best possible care without sacrificing your well-being and your, um, yeah, your mental state. Well, that is lovely to hear that positions like that exist and that many people have them if you intentionally find them. Because, yeah, the 80-hour work week, what you're just describing, it's like, I can't be a resident for my entire life. (laughs) It's not sustainable. And the thing is, everything feels better after residency because it's so busy. So, like, you work 80 hours and you're like, oh, I'm off for a whole week. That's incredible. I can – but – Trust me, after a couple of years, you won't be able to do it. And no one should be working 80 hours a week. Agreed. Agreed. Yes. <laughs> Definitely something we relate to. Yes. What other questions do you have? What other questions do you have? Do you guys have questions for us? Yeah. I have a question for Reza. Ooh, open up um, the floor. <laughs> dear Reza, what is that thing behind you on the whiteboard? <laughs> dear Robbie, if you showed up on time, I explained to both Lizzie and Julia. This is the the aorta. That right there is the intimal flap. Wow. This right here is the media. This is the false lumen. Amazing. Suppressing the true lumen in the case of an aortic dissection. Wow. But I was telling Lizzie and Julia that I also talked about the penetrating aortic ulcer. Nice. Intramural hematoma from rupture of the vasovasura in the acute aortic syndrome absolutely I, i'm so proud of my i learned all that recently because of the case that we discussed on rlr cp solvers i spent like 10 hours just thinking about the aorta you know um i think it is the epitome of creativity and growth to ask a teacher to teach having to point looking backwards <laughs> at, at their video of themselves and move the <gasps> opposite direction they're supposed to so i think prof res is the uh, symbolizes the uh, future of medical education because he uses, the, <laughs> he uses any time that I'm late to continue to teach clearly. And then <laughs> teachers backwards, which uh, is very, very cool. Kudos to you, Prof. Reza. That's why he's now Dean Reza. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Has a great French accent. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and all you've learned about me is I can't eat straight and I nap and I fall asleep and I, uh, I'm i a very dirty eater. No, the funny thing <laughs> is Robbie is the one that's always on time. He like keeps our whole calendar organized. Um, but so I'm, I'm glad for once he failed. <laughs> it brings me great joy. <laughs> But I want to also just extend the congratulations from both of us to the two of you. I can never think during residency to do this. And you guys are like living what you're doing. You like found the new platform to teach, to share your passion. And you're pursuing that despite a busy residency schedule. So I'm just really excited to see your futures and like what else you guys accomplished. But congratulations to, to both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. How are how are you able to do? Let me ask you for the audience listening. How are you able to balance the residency schedule and being so innovative? And yeah, I think it's still a work in progress. Yeah, (laughs) to be determined, I think. But I think we the way that we've come about it and have been working on it is it's me and Julia and our producer BJN. And we're used to working together on teams, like on the wards and like 
picking up the slack where people can't. And I think we've really naturally fallen into that. So like I've been super busy the past couple of weeks and Julia sending out all these emails and doing all, all this stuff. And then we'll kind of like switch places for a few weeks. And I think having more support as a team is really the only way that we are going to be able to do this. Yeah. And I like hanging out with Lizzie and Bijan. So that always makes it a little bit easier. Like you're on the wards all day and it's like one thing, like I'm doing research too. It's one thing to go home and like write your abstract, but it's way more fun to be like, Hey, Bijan and Lizzie, you want to go to get a drink and like talk about our next episode? Like way more fun. So I feel like that's kind of use use chat GPT to write your abstracts. (laughs) That's what everyone says, but then they make up false or like made up quotes. Have you heard that? Oh no, I haven't. I guess like the quote, like the quotes at the bottom or whatever are just like made up articles. <laughs> so don't do that. Yeah, Julia, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bad <laughs> recommendation. Yeah, from the- Dean Reza. From, Dean Re- from CP Solvers, very bad recommendation. <laughs> How did you all come up with the name? That's what I'm curious about. Oh man, we had so many different names that we were thinking of. So many really bad ones. Yeah, I don't know. We just came up, we had a big long list and part of it was finding a name that hadn't, isn't already being used in some way or another. Um, so like we can do like the CP solvers that, you know, we, tried, <laughs> we, we crossed that yeah. off our list. Um, but we just thought of it and it kind of fits really perfectly. Yeah. That's what we want to do is we want to think about like all these systems that we have in meta ed and the whole like process of becoming a doctor and review them. That's awesome. That is so good. I absolutely love it. I had a lot of really bad ideas first, so. Yeah. No, we were brainstorming. I think, I think, I think nobody's ever landed on a good idea without going through the trash, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah. So we all have to do that. Definitely. Well, thanks again. I guess I don't think I have any more questions on the top of my head unless you got any, Lizzie. No, we've had such a lovely time talking with you both. Any advice? Podcasting advice specifically? Famous podcasters? Can I just share with you an embarrassing thing that happens in my mind at the end of every episode? Yes. So so a prof res always makes me sign us out. So I was like, how would I sign out the review of systems? And I was literally thinking ROS complete as my way to like bounce out. (laughs) So take that, throw it in the trash and tell me what your actual like sign out is for these episodes. What do you do? We don't have a sign out. Oh, there you go. Now Now it's Ross complete. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. (laughs) We performed a full like 14 point review system. (laughs) (laughs) And it is now complete. (laughs) Well, will you sign us out? Yeah. Will you do it? I think I think Prof should do it. Dean Rez, will you do it? That's that's beneath the Dean's job. Bravi, <laughs> you're the sign out guru. You All right. 14 point review systems complete. Yay! And that's our episode. Check out our show notes and make sure to follow us on Twitter at ROS underscore pod and Instagram at review of systems underscore pod to get the most up to date information on what the Ross Pod crew is up to. Thanks for listening. Shout out to our executive producer, Bijan Sadie, and also Whitney Gould for making our intro and logos. And with that, I'd say a 14... 14- <laughs> <laughs>
I cannot with you guys. (laughs) Can we be serious for five seconds? (laughs) 